0: how would you describe the Bible? How would you describe God's Word? Maybe some of you would say it's boring. It's old. If you're not a Christian, maybe you'd say unreliable. Fables. Maybe if you're a Christian, you would focus in on the fact that God's Word is showing us how to live. So if I said... How would you describe God's word? You'd say instruction. Shows us what to do and what not to do. And and in part, you'd be right. There are many metaphors used about Scripture in Scripture. And one of them is that God's word is a lamp. A lamp unto our path, a light unto our feet. Psalm 119. But it also has other word pictures, metaphors about itself that are more jarring. For instance, Jeremiah 23 says God's word is like a hammer that shatters a rock. James 1 tells us that God's word is like a mirror. Sometimes we don't like what we see in the mirror, the real mirror, a physical mirror. God's word is like a spiritual mirror. It, it shows us what we can't see on our own. It exposes our, our desires, our waywardness, our failings. Our misplaced motives. And yet God's word is also said to be a sword which cuts, pierces, gets even into the marrow of our bones, according to Hebrews 4. But Ephesians 5 says it's like water. God's word is washing. It waters us. We're told in Psalm 10, God's word is honey. To those who are His, they love His word, and His word is sweet to the taste. It's like gold, Psalm 10 says. It's to be treasured and pursued more than much fine gold. 1 Peter 2 says it's like a mama's milk for newborn babes. Jesus said in Matthew 4, it's like bread. It's like bread from heaven. It's the bread of God. It fills us. It sustains us. It satisfies us. And Luke 8 tells us that God's word is like seed. It goes in, and then something organic happens. Something real and lively happens, and something blooms, and it grows, and it spreads. Well, the word, the Bible, is the center of Paul's thought In Colossians 3.16, and for good reason, he knows all these metaphors, he knows what God's word is for and what it does, and he's commending it to the Colossian Christians as sort of the centerpiece of their Christianity and their church ministry. Colossians chapter 3, look there if you would, and let's start reading in verse 13. We'll focus on verse 16 and 17 this morning, but I want to just back up a few verses to get a running start and show us some context. Picking up in the middle of a sentence, verse 13, Paul says, "...bearing with one another." Things we should be doing as the church and with each other. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body... Now remember that this is in the middle or even toward the end of a letter, a letter Paul's writing to Colossian Christians in the first century. So whether you've been with us through this study of the book of Colossians or not, let me just remind you of some big picture things so that we don't just treat this like like these are nice sayings, like these are proverbs in the New Testament, just floating sayings of wisdom Advice. No, verses 16 to 17 are actually part of how you do what Paul has been encouraging the Colossian Christians in the previous verses of this chapter. So if you've been with us in previous weeks, you remember, look down in your Bibles, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. We treated that as one message. He says, seek the things which are above. Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Put your mind there. Go there. Love it. Live there. And then, verses 5 to 11, he says, Put to death and put away your old self, the things that are comprised of the old creation, the old fallen world. And verses 12 to 15, he puts it more positively, put on a new identity, like a cloak, like clothes, put it on. Put on a new identity with new relationships and new habits and new goals, new behavior. And then he gets to the word of God dwelling in us. In other words, he's saying, here's how, here's how you seek what's above. Here's how you put off the old self. Here's how you put on a new self of love and forgiveness and encouragement. The word of Christ. That's how. The word dwelling in us, dwelling among us, in our relationships, in our worship, and in everything we do. Now that's what Paul has been praying for 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 these Colossian Christians. Remind yourself of that. Go back to chapter 1 just quickly. We'll read a few verses here from chapter 1. Remember this wonderful prayer in verse 9? So from the day we heard about your faith, your conversion, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. How are they going to get that? The word of Christ. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, how will they know what pleases him? The word of Christ. May you, verse 11, be strengthened in the knowledge of God according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. How? The word of Christ but we also can't miss the fact that everything we're talking about in chapter 3, all these do's, right? Think a certain way. Don't live a certain way. Do live another way. And have the word as part of your life, central to your life and central to the church. These things rest only and completely on the gospel. Paul doesn't begin a letter with this to do, Sing. Sing to each other. Sing with understanding. Teach each other. Let the word soak into your life. He doesn't start with that. No, it took three chapters of things to precede it. And really what what he keeps saying over and over is that these things stand only upon the shoulders of the gospel that Jesus died in our place. He died for our sins to take the wrath of God And to forgive us, to bring us to himself. Or, as it says, chapter 1, verse 20, through Jesus, God was reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled you in his body of flesh. You can't come to him with great praise apart from the gospel. You can't earn your way to him with great praise or disciplined Bible reading. I don't care if you're a monk. You live in a monastery, you have nothing to do but read the Bible and pray. There's no earning your way to him. There's only getting right with him through the gospel. And then, now, being right with him, we commune with him. So the word of God isn't just an instruction manual. It doesn't just tell us what to do and what not to do. It's the means by which we hear from God. It's the means by which we taste and see that he's good. So I want to tell you four things related to the word, to the Bible in Colossians 3, 16 and 17. The first, the word planted within. Look At the beginning of verse 16 of chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now why does it say word of Christ? I doesn't say Word of God or Bible or Scripture? I think first, for starters, Word of Christ is referring to Scripture. What it's saying when it says Word of Christ, though, is that Christ is the focus of the Word. The Word is about Christ. And He's also the source of the Word. The, the Word is Christ's. It comes from Him. It's about him, and it comes from him. Both are true. It's not one or the other, probably, at least as I understand Paul. Paul frequently does this kind of thing of a double meaning. And I think he means it here when he says word of Christ. It's the word that's about Christ, and it's the word that comes from Christ. And I think Paul is talking about the New Testament here. I think what he's telling us by this is that the New Testament is scripture. Now that's not surprising for you if you're a Christian and you have these 27 New Testament books bound together with the Old Testament and it's stamped on the back Holy Bible. So you go, yeah, New Testament is scripture. Duh. But you have to remember, Paul's writing this in a transitional period in redemptive history, isn't he? I mean, he's writing scripture. As he's writing, scripture is happening. And so the church is starting to receive these letters in a a different way than you would receive any other letter. You see it from Peter, who endorses Paul. At the end of 2 Peter, in chapter 3, Peter says that Paul's writings are sometimes hard to understand. Isn't it nice to know Peter thought so too? And he says, some people have twisted Paul's writings as they do other scripture. Peter says Paul writes scripture. Paul's letters are scripture. And specifically, they're the word of Christ. Yes, the Old Testament is in a sense a word of Christ. But the New Testament especially is the word of Christ. This Colossian letter, other letters, the New Testament, the Gospels, these things must dwell in our hearts. Yes, with the Old Testament as well, but, but not least those parts which so clearly and so demonstrably show us the person and work of Christ. It says it should dwell in you richly. That word dwell has to do with residence. Just like you might say, I dwell at this location, this address. If you said that, you'd be implying something about a length of time, right? Where you dwell is, is where you live. It's not where you visit. So Paul's saying the word of God needs to dwell in our hearts. It doesn't visit our hearts. Right? It lives there. It doesn't just stop by every now and then. It doesn't bounce from brain to brain and there it goes and it's, it's done. It's supposed to go deep. Doesn't it imply feeling at home? The word of God should feel at home, deep within us. I was away this last week for about six or seven days, and I had a good time. You know, I I was doing something productive. It was fulfilling. Uh, I even had a good bed, stayed at a nice house. And yet to come home, oh, our smells. You know, we're used to our smells. You know, uh, this bed, ah, I like this. This is my favorite bed. It's my bed, right? There's something about home. You feel at home, at home. And the word of God should feel at home because it's to dwell in Christians. There's something about intimacy in that word dwell that we don't just read the word, but we internalize it. We accept it. It goes into our innermost being. You think of the fact that there are parts of your home that are more personal than others, right? So you have some company over. The kitchen's pretty public, right? Anyone can just go in the kitchen. That's not off limits. But, but a closed bedroom door usually signifies, we didn't make the bed, don't go in there, right? Now, if you're a really good friend, you'll go to your friend's house and the, the door for the bedroom is closed. That doesn't mean anything to you. You just walk in. A messy bed, I, I don't care, you know? A closet inside a master bedroom is even more personal, isn't it? Ooh, what's that on the floor, right? Uh, it's, It's something we don't want strangers to come in. It's like there are these rings of what's public and then what's private, even in our own homes. And Paul's saying, let the word of God dwell in the closet of your heart, the dirty, stinky closet of your heart. Get the word in there. Let it be personal and intimate. Let it all the way in. With depth and not superficiality how how do we get the Word to dwell in us richly like paul 's talking about well, one way of answering the question is to say, anyway and every way we can, we need the Word around us, under us, over us, with us, we need the Word to dwell in us in part through the preaching of god 's word in in corporate worship with the church, just like it's happening right now. Hopefully, Colossians 3.16 is moving further into the closet of your heart as we're talking about it and unfolding it. Maybe it's coming more alive. We're exposing something new about it, and it's helping you, perhaps. We need the preaching ministry of the church, and the church's ministry, especially corporate worship, must be word-centered and word-saturated. Everything else we do... We do directed by the Word of God. We do because we're told to do it from the Word of God. And the Word of God is the the means by which we do it, right? It's the plan that you get in the mail and it shows you what to do. And it's more than the plan. It's also the building materials. We need God's Word. We need it in preaching. We need it beyond just preaching. We need it in our own personal Bible reading throughout the week. Sunday's good, and it may be that you need to give more attention to corporate worship and the dissemination and application of God's word into your life through the public preaching ministry of the church. It may be you need to, I don't know, be more thoughtful about when it's worth missing and when it's not, right? Or when you miss listening to the sermon online just to to stay up and and to, to get God's word on a weekly basis in the preaching ministry of the church but that's not enough we need we need daily bites of God's word we need bible reading you need a plan usually to read well maybe memorization and meditation is a way in which you further dwell on God's word and God's word dwells in you one thing I've done before is is take a, a time in the morning to read a chunk of God's Word, or usually a bigger chunk, and then from there, take a, a three-by-five card. In one of the verses that I read, I write it down. I haven't yet memorized it, and I'm going to put it in my back pocket, and then I'm going to, throughout the day, look at it. And maybe by the end of the day, I've almost memorized it. That's really not the goal, though. It doesn't matter. The goal is chewing on this. It's like, it's like having a Cliff Bar with you all day, you know, I mean, who eats a cliff Bar straight through? No one does that, right? So, but you nibble on it. You, you put it in your backpack on a hike, and you pull it out, and you, you nibble here. You nibble there. You need ongoing food throughout the day. God's Word is food. We saw that already. We saw that it's bread. We saw that it's water. We saw that it's milk. We saw that it's meat. We need to chew on God's Word And I'm not even sure just once a day is enough. I think we can so easily think that we are being obedient to God, doing Bible in our lives because we took some time in the morning to read it, and then we can check it off our list and then go about our day and do whatever you want because you did your devotions, you might call them, or quiet time, you might call it. Instead, think of more the Bible being more pervasive in your life, spreading it out all day. Maybe, yes, having that chunk, that routine of private, quiet, long reading. But sometimes you need to break the plan. Read longer than your assignment for the day because you can't stop. Get back to it later at lunch because you can't help it. Or maybe you don't finish your three chapters assigned for the day because in chapter one you got cut. The word of God as a sword was wielded and opened you up and you stayed there obediently to the Lord. Have plans and I hope you have more than just plans. Use good books as a means to let the word dwell richly in you or or Bible audio. Something exciting I'll tell you about is that this summer we're planning on doing something of a reading program as a church. Throughout the summer... I'm going to preach one New Testament book per week, and we're going to together read or listen to the New Testament throughout that time. It should be a great time of soaking in the New Testament and thinking about God's Word together as families and individually. The point is just this. We need the Word everywhere, permeating every part of life, saturating our thoughts and our intentions and our speech. God calls Christians to be promiscuous with their Bible use. He calls Christians to be liberal in their Bible intake. So, let me ask you some check-up questions related to the Bible. Are you growing in familiarity with the Bible? Do you know now where some chapters are, certain themes are? Better now than you used to? Oh, I know you have so, so far to go. Look, I've been studying the Bible either academically or, in a sense, professionally as a pastor um, for 15 years. 15 years, this has been my full-time job, in addition to being a Christian and doing some extra stuff, too, beyond the seminary classes and, and what I'm paid for at the church here, right? I mean, it's, it's my Christian life and it's my job, and yet there's so much I don't know about the Bible. There's so many places I, I, I'm, I'm unfamiliar. It's uncharted territory for me. There's so much more I need to get under my belt. But, but are you growing? Are you growing? Whatever time allotment you have for God's word in your schedule, is that growing? Maybe you're finding and learning to soak in certain favorites. Maybe the book of Philippians is a favorite for you because there's so much joy there. Or maybe you know Psalm 38 is a great place to walk your hard heart through repentance when it doesn't want to go there because it treats sin as pretty ugly. Or maybe you know the biggest psalm is one about the Bible, and so when you feel lazy about reading the Bible, you can go to Psalm 119, you read a section of it, and it stirs up your excitement about the Word and your expectations about what God can do through His Word in your life as you read it that morning. Do you have new favorites? Are you growing and piling familiarity lists even in your mind? Growing in theology and doctrine, learning that this thing you thought was true isn 't true anymore, and this passage you used to quote and love, you know now you used to rip it right out of context, and it didn 't have anything to do with what you thought it was what you thought it had to do with, and uh, you 're growing in understanding interpretation and context, and maybe you 're growing and being more meditative and contemplative about god 's word so that so that it isn't just a checklist thing. You don't just read your assignment, whatever it is, and go, There, done. That's it. I, I feel good now. I can go about my day because I did my one thing for God. I tithed my time this morning so that I can now go and do whatever I want. Maybe you used to think that, but you're growing instead to to love, to linger long in God's word and see it as not a task, but communion with Him. It has to be read for it to dwell in us richly. Do you have a plan? Maybe you don't have a plan and that's part of the problem. Are you bored with it? Maybe it's all work for you. I wonder if this test is appropriate for you. Do you ever skip over the Bible quotations in a good Christian book? Just go ahead for fun. Let's see how many people have done that before. You know, a big chunk in a, a good book... A chunk of Bible, and you, you read the line before it, and you, you uh, okay, I know what 1 Corinthians 13 is. It's a love chapter, and you skip it, right? Oh, I've done that. Perhaps we can just put that behind us. Like right now, let's just bury that, that bad habit and realize the horrible irony of skipping Bible parts in a book about the Bible, that we're going to a book to learn about the Bible and how to do Bible Christianity, and we're skipping the Bible parts. And you say, but I'm familiar with it. Yeah, but no one says, I don't want that steak. I had that steak before. Vegetarians might, but I mean steak people. No one says, what else you got? I mean, give me something I haven't had before. I know what that tastes like. No one does that. Why? Well, because there's a reenjoyment of the food, even if it's familiar. And there's a fresh nourishment from the food that we need. Life depends on it. We need today's food from the Word of God. And remember, we eat more by eating more. My kids have sometimes pointed out that the portion on my plate is larger than the size of my fist, which they've learned... It's supposed to represent the size of your stomach, right? you heard this? The size of your stomach is approximately the size of your fist. And so you should look down at your food. And my kids have said at times, that's bigger than your fist. And I've told them, it's grown. Okay? I've stretched it. I had the opposite of that surgery that squeezes it. I had it enlarged. I didn't have that surgery, just kidding. But but it is larger than my fist, I guarantee you that. Because <laughs> I can shove it in. And <laughs> and that might be sin in our eating habits, it might be gluttony, but as far as our spiritual life goes, we should stretch our spiritual stomachs with the word. Perhaps some of us aren't hungry for the word because we haven't eaten so long we're not hungry. If you fasted for any length of time, you know that. You know that you can so starve yourself that your body begins to shut down and it doesn't hunger for food. It doesn't expect it anymore. Maybe you don't hunger for God's word because you've starved your, your soul. Maybe you don't hunger for God's word because you really don't have a new heart. You're not a Christian. But if you're a Christian, you need God's word. Your life depends on it. Eat. Eat in order to eat more. Eat in order to desire his word more. I love that line in Psalm 119. My eyes fail from searching your word, saying, when will you comfort me? In other words, he has rummaged through his Bible so long that his eyes are hurting They're weak and blurry. And he hasn't yet found the comfort that he needs from God's word, but he knows it's there, so he keeps digging. We need that kind of faith to go digging, to eat and be hungry. I love how Sinclair Ferguson puts this in relation to the Bible and our tongue, our conversation, our speech. He says, the most important single aid So my ability to use my tongue for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is allowing the word of God to dwell in me so richly that I cannot speak in any other accent. So Deuteronomy 6 tells us we should talk about the word from our getting up to our going down. It should be on the doorposts of our house. When we go in to the house, we should talk about the word. When we go out, we should talk about the word. We should look for ways to remind ourselves to talk about the Word and to talk about the Word to our kids. Deuteronomy 32, it says, God says, Take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you. The NIV says, it is no trifle for you. It's your life. It's life. reminds us of what Jesus said in Luke 10 when Martha was complaining and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet Jesus said, oh Martha you're worried about so many things one thing is needful one thing is necessary and it's not dinner it's not the kitchen it's sitting at my feet the word has to be planted in our hearts secondly, the word has to be propagated among others He says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Teaching each other. Now, no doubt that's related to what we're doing here on a Sunday morning. It's also no doubt related to the different teaching ministries of the church, whether they're men's huddles or women's Bible studies or different seminars that we offer from time to time. No doubt it's related in part to community groups where a a good community group leader teaches and draws out discussion and application. But it can't just be these things. It has to be something more organic and more personal and more intimate. We need both the planned, like ministries, Bible studies, community groups. And the unplanned, two people talking after the service with a cookie in hand, sharing Bible speaking into each other's lives. A culture of discipleship is what we need in our church. We see some good hints of this here, but we could grow in this, folks. And I realize it starts from the top down. I'm not sure I do a very good job of setting an example for being busy, about being in other people's lives. When I'm tired, I tend to shut off a compartment that, that, would, uh, that would raise problems, right? So here's a pastor. I, I could ask you some questions about your life, your priorities, just, you know, lovingly, not confrontationally. But it could add work for me. So I don't. Well, sometimes I do. But I need to do it more. We need to rub shoulders with each other and our Bibles, our lives. We're we're not only after connectedness, so some of you may need to just get connected. There's no one around you. There's no one in your life to be able to speak into your life. But we need more than just connectedness. We need word-centered, word-oriented, word-saturated connectedness. And we need organic, compulsive, natural, instinctive, Word-saturated connectedness. So the the imagery that we often use as elders, we borrowed this from a book, a book that we recently went through, it's very helpful, called The Trellis and the Vine. You know what a trellis is? It's what grows, a vine grows up it, right? So programs are like trellises. They're helpful. You, You need sometimes some direction for the vine to grow. Sometimes the vine just grows off the trellis though, right? It organically, naturally just happens. So we want not just trellises. That might be fine for your your backyard where everything is zero-scape. Just put up a trellis. You don't need something to grow. But we in the church, we can't just have trellises. We need growth in the midst of those trellises. And not just trellises, but stuff that grows in between the trellises. So be purposeful about common conversations where you look for opportunities to talk about God, to talk about his word, to share what you're learning, or to ask some personal kind of question, to ask sometimes some tough questions. Oh, not in an obnoxious way, but even sometimes we need to hear something and be concerned and express that concern. Because Paul says, not just teaching each other, but admonishing one another. In other words, confront warn, exhort, point in the right direction and do it with all wisdom because it takes wisdom, right? I mean, boy, to do this right, to do it pervasively, to have a lot of growth in between trellises, God has to do it and he has to give us wisdom to do it in a way that's that's loving and yet bold, that's biblical and yet gentle. But we need to teach those who are able to teach others also. The plan Paul gave Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. We need, according to Hebrews 10, to strategize how to stir up each other unto love and good works. And sometimes that's in a program, and sometimes that's off the grid of the programs. We need Ephesians 4 to happen, where the people of the church do the work of the ministry pastor teachers are here in a church for equipping equipping the saints for the work of the ministry you are in a sense the, the hands the legs the ears the eyes of the under shepherds of this church the pastors of this church and even more impressive and more motivating for you is that in some ways you are the hands and the feet the eyes and the ears of Jesus Christ to his church when you get close, when you teach and admonish and pray for wisdom. Thirdly, we need to praise the word back to God. The word praised back to God. The word needs to be planted, it needs to be propagated, and it needs to be praised. In other words, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now notice the word-centeredness of this singing. Look down in your Bibles. I want to show you, just bear with me, some grammar here. It begins with a command, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. But then what comes after are several, again, bear with me, participles, I-N-G words here in the English. And these are ways, it appears, of describing what came before it. In other words, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly is the umbrella thing. It's the priority, it's the biggest thing. And then there are at least three prongs, right? It's like a three-legged stool underneath. Teaching is how, in part, the word of Christ will dwell richly in this church. Admonishing, ing, a participle, is part of how the word of Christ will dwell richly in this church. And singing, is part of how the word of Christ will dwell richly in this church. So there should be something of instruction in our singing. It should be truth-oriented. You might think our, our singing here is thick. We sing thick or old songs. And I say, yes and amen. We need truth, right? We need truth set on fire. And that's why sometimes we modernize them, and that's why sometimes we have drums and and guitars, and, and we encourage you to sing loudly, because he's great and greatly to be praised. There's a deliberate corporate consciousness to this, too. Remember, he said, teaching one another, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Look over at Ephesians 5, you see this even more clearly, where... It's clearly singing that's to others. Ephesians 5.19, Paul says they are a sister passage to Colossians 3.16, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, our singing is to be worship, it's to be vertical, and yet there's also a horizontal element to it. It's personal. It's to others. You don't have the right to not sing if you're a Christian. You don't. You have a job here on Sunday morning. If you have no other job on Sunday morning, you have this job to come in and sing. You're the choir here. And people do enjoy it when you sing. And when they hear you. Yes, even if it's off tune. Yes. So I would encourage you to not only sing with gusto, or as Charles Wesley said in his his first hymnal, The church should sing lustily. Great old word. We should not only sing lustily, but we should look around every now and then and notice that we're not alone in our car. We're not in our living room. We're not in our prayer closets. We're here purposefully together. I'm thankful that we have a worship center that looks inward and and gives us that opportunity. I would say go even further in looking around and seeing people praise God on a Sunday morning. In the middle of your singing, do the awkward, glorious thing of looking over and keep singing. And and when someone looks at you like, hey, what are you looking at? (laughs) Smile and keep singing. And the more we do this, the more we will Together be aware that we are together and we're encouraging each other in this thing of singing. We're doing it, as Drew said earlier, with one voice to God. Look around every now and then. Do it more than you currently do. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms, we know what those are, right? 150 of them right in the middle of our Bibles. And one thing noteworthy about the Psalms is that they contain the full range of human emotions. There are things in the Psalms that, as a church, we probably should sing. In no small part, because no one writes modern songs like that today. Like Psalm 13 is a lament psalm. So it starts out by saying, God, where are you? How long will you hide your face from me? Do you hear me? Have you given up on me? And some of you feel like that most Sunday mornings, but we never sing a song to reflect it. Psalm 13 walks, walks us out of the miry clay of despair and inward looking. We need to sing psalms. Thankfully, Drew has assembled a songwriting guild, and part of what they're doing is writing psalms to modern tunes. I don't just mean a song about a psalm. I don't just mean a song that has a little bit of a psalm. I mean they're trying to take psalms and put those to music because we need that. We need the full range of human emotions expressed in our singing. We need the the reality of the hurt and the sorrow and the brokenness of this world reflected in our singing or else there will be disillusionment and apostasy. We need to sing psalms and hymns That probably refers to songs that are focused on Christ. We need to sing spiritual songs. But some suggest are newly written songs, like spirit-induced songs, spirit-produced songs. We need to sing the Word, and we need to sing songs about the Word or from the Word that are rooted in the Word, that are rich with scriptural teaching and vocabulary. We need words and songs that instruct. And we need to be thankful. Look at that last phrase of verse 16 where he says, Thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now that's more profound than it might appear at first. He says thankfulness in your hearts. He doesn't say thankfulness in your words. That would be much easier. When grandma buys you a new pair of socks, you say thank you. You may not feel it, though, right? You may not feel that thankfulness about the new tube socks with huge red stripes at the top. You you might not feel that. So there's a difference between saying thanks and being thankful. And Paul is showing us here, there's so much more than just saying thanks or even singing thanks. Our corporate worship can't just be about singing. Something has to happen in the midst of the singing. The singing is the water, the river that pushes truth and emotion down. So we need to stir up our affections for God. We need to pray for satisfaction in Him, like Moses does in Psalm 9014. He says, Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we might sing for joy and be glad all our days. Don't you think you might be helped? By every Sunday morning praying Psalm 90, verse 14, before you come, satisfy me this morning with your loving kindness that I might sing for joy and be glad today. Remember that progression we did earlier in the service? The, the Rs were to remember and rehearse and repent and re-believe and receive, revive, revere, realign and repeat. Or to put it more simply as Jesus did in John 4, it's head and heart, spirit and truth. That's what, that's what happens in worship. We take truth, we ingest it, we, we digest it, we chew on it in our brains, and we push it down to our hearts. And then it's supposed to be released in physical expressions of God's majesty and glory. Remember, he's great and greatly to be praised. His greatness is to be reflected, not just in our minds, not just in our hearts, but also in hands raised, in clapping, perhaps even on dropped knees, and in loud singing. Sing. Sing as though your life depended on it. Sing as though it's the means of getting To God and reflecting his glory. There's nothing small about our singing on a Sunday morning. It is a meeting of heaven and earth. It's what we will do in the new heaven and the new earth. Every time we see a picture of of heaven in the Bible. What are they doing? They're singing. And it's glorious and it's big. We're to reflect that now in the foretaste of what's to come when we meet together. So I pray Often, that one of the things DSC will be known for in years to come is its loud, passionate congregational singing. Again, here's an area where we've improved, but we need to grow more. We need to grow more, and it starts with you. By the way, did you notice how little detail is given about the church's singing in Colossians 3? It says to sing, it says to sing with thankfulness, it says to sing to God, it says to sing with others in mind, singing should be instructional, it says there are a few different kinds of songs, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and that's it. It doesn't say how long it should be, it doesn't say how it should be led, it doesn't say what instruments we should use, it doesn't say what the lighting should be, it doesn't say exactly what the order of the service should be, it doesn't say whether to use PowerPoint or hymnals, or printed bulletins that have the words in them. It doesn't say, it doesn't say whether it should be four-part harmony. It doesn't say whether you should close your eyes or open them. Although open them seems to be a little bit more spiritual because of the otherness of what we're seeing here in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. It doesn't say a lot of things. And yet some of these things that I just listed are deal-breakers for Christians today. Brothers and sisters, that shouldn't be. We should not make our musical preferences reasons for parting ways with the church. God has not given us a lot of detail in his word about how we do this thing of singing. And that's an understatement. He hasn't given us almost any detail about how we do it. And yet... For many people in the evangelical church in America today, it is the most opinionated, most divisive, most rigid, and most certain thing there is. We shouldn't be certain where God has not been clear. Instead, we should think, we should praise, we should say, keep reminding ourselves that the gospel is what unites us, not a, a music, not a style, not cultural preferences. The gospel is what unites us. Say it again and again. Remind yourself every Sunday. The word is planted in our hearts. It's propagated with each other. It's praised back to God. And forcefully, the word should be permeating all of life. Whatever you do, verse 17, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving things. This is so, so much like First Corinthians ten thirty one. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In other words, our singing here isn't enough. We've got to leave from this place with the same purpose and passion that we have when we meet together. This is something like the microwave, intense version of what we should be doing all week in everything that we do. Oh, we don't do it so well, but that's what we're aiming for. We're aiming to to put burdens on God when they land on us and trust Him and pray. We're learning and trying to give thanks to Him when something is sweet and enjoyable and lovely and better than we deserve. We're looking to do things like, no matter how small they are, like they're holy works, like they're priestly things like it's temple worship. Romans 12.1 talks about this, that we lay our bodies down as living sacrifices now. We're priests and we're sacrifices, but it's not once for all. It's ongoing. It's in every heartbeat, every thought, everything ideally put under the lordship of Christ and done consciously unto him, giving thanks. Man, has this theme of thankfulness been repeated in Colossians. Just Maybe you want to write down the references because they've popped up several times. Chapter 1, verse 3 of Colossians. What's he say there? He says, we give thanks. Always thank God. Verse 12 of Colossians 1. He says there, give thanks to the Father. Chapter 2, verse 7. There he says... We should be rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then, three in a row, three, chapter three, verse 15, right at the end, just a floater, it seems, and be thankful. And then verse 16, sing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then verse 17, whatever you do, do it in word or deed, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Man, man, this theme of thankfulness pops up in Colossians a total of seven times. Chapter 4, verse 2 is the seventh. There, we'll see, in upcoming weeks, he says, we should continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And this thanksgiving, of course, just like we've been talking about this morning, should be word-based, word-oriented, word-directed, word-led. You don't know what to give thanks for? Get in the word and start praying through things to give thanks for. Start writing things down. Start trying to be conscious in talking to God about things that you would normally just talk to people about. Like, hey, is it a nice day? Yeah, say that to God yet? No, you should, right? Word-based, word-focused, word-led, word-saturated. And remember, we've been saying there are no shortcuts here. We have to walk ourselves through who he is and what he's done and why we should be thankful for it. It's like we take a Bible verse throughout our day, and we hit refresh. You know, when you're surfing the web, and sometimes you hit refresh on a web page. Just keep hitting refresh. Take this passage, this gift, this reality, and hit refresh. Refresh in your heart. Refresh in your mind. Well, we've talked about a lot of things this morning. Preaching personal Bible reading, conversations and relationships with others, singing in the church and all of life as worship, these feel pretty separate. They sound pretty distinct, right? But clearly the Word of God is what ties all these things together. The Word of God is the glue and the ground of everything we do. It needs to saturate life more and more. You see, we're not just getting together this morning for good advice. We're not just getting together this morning so that we feel better about the fact that we've done something God tells us to do. When we pray on Monday morning or this evening as a family, we, we don't just pray out of the blue. We pray in response to what he said. He's, he's initiated the conversation over and over again. Human relationships are not just an end in and of themselves. Just a singing isn't an end in itself. You see, without the word, these things are just shadows of reality. Relationships, as good as they are and as meaningful as they seem. Without the word, it's like a subway tunnel without the train. So there are a million subway tunnels in life. Your work is a subway tunnel. Meeting together as a church, the subway tunnel. Praying together, subway tunnel. Relationship, subway tunnel. Singing together, subway tunnel. And the word of God is the train. And without the word of God, it's just a a desolate, abandoned subway system. It's the home for roaches and rats. We need life to be livingly filled with God's word. It's communion with him. It's no trifle for you. It's your life.